and somebody wants to for me to come speak for free, I have to imagine them reaching into my wallet or my bank account or my kid's college account and pulling out a thousand dollars. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. Today, I have yet another female entrepreneur who is also a mother of four, Carrie Wilkerson. Before I get to Carrie, a reminder, the 10,000 No's store has been live for two weeks now. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased hats and t-shirts. And for some of you who have reached out and asked about, for example, the women's tee in a large size. Apologies, it's not there now. We are working on it. It's just a reminder, this is all a work in progress. It'll get better and better as it goes. And hopefully we will be adding some new products down the line. I'll put the link in the show notes, but just know that you can also go to 10,000nose.com and hit the store link or go directly to 10,000nose.com slash store to see what we have. If you shop on Amazon, if you're human, I'm guessing you do, uh, please consider doing so through my Amazon influencer page. Um, basically, it's amazon.com slash shop slash Maddie Dell. That link will also be in the show notes. Basically, it sends a cut of whatever you buy to our account to help support the show. It's not a boatload, but anything helps and it doesn't require a cent more from you. All your prices are the same. You're just going to that link versus the standard amazon.com. And I'll keep adding cool products that I use, different lists that I have there. So if you're wondering, for example, what audio equipment we use for this show or what acting books or other types of books I've been reading, it'll eventually all be there. Uh, I'm sure my brother is rolling his eyes if he's listening to this, like anybody cares what I'm reading. Anyway, enough of that. Let's talk about today's guest. Carrie Wilkerson forgets just how much she has transformed, but she went from weighing 266 pounds, twice her current size, and feeling lethargic, to being what I describe as tiny and an absolute ball of fire when it comes to energy. She says her daddy always taught her, if you can find a way to get paid for talking, baby girl, you will have it made. And she has taken that to the bank, speaks regularly in front of large arenas and smaller groups. Uh, she has also written books. She consults business owners, giving back some of the hard-earned wisdom she gleaned building her businesses from home while raising four children. I find Carrie to be so funny, and she has tons of lessons about transformation, the balance of work and family, and the value of knowing your worth and demanding your proper price. Here she is, Carrie Wilkerson. And I remember one was like, you know, a slide of you speaking to a huge arena. And then the other thing I remember was a picture of you and you side by side. And one of them, you looked like yourself now and people that are listening can't see you, but maybe they'll see pictures if they see it on Instagram, but they can't in the audio version will not know. You're very <laughs> slender, tiny, tiny, tiny little, my new favorite word, tiny little person. <laughs> and there was a picture of you. You were you know, 266 different. pounds. I'll rescue you. I was 266 pounds. Wow. Yeah. So I was approximately 
<clears throat> twice my size now. Um, yeah, so I do like pictures of us together because you are so tall and you make me feel so small. And for someone who my whole life never felt small like that uh, externally, that's that's fun. So tiny is my favorite thing. I met a supermodel on a plane. I was flying standby, so I got the middle back seat by the bathroom, right? It's all happened to us at least once. And I'm coming back there and I remember coming down the aisle. This is when your body transforms before your brain does coming down the aisle and I remember consciously like turning sideways and, and trying to make myself as, take up as little space as possible and um, sat in the back. And I remember thinking all the way down the aisle, I hope they don't hate that it's me, that it's coming. I hope, you know, because we always have been next to the people that take up too much space. Now, keep in mind, <clears throat> I had already lost all my weight. And so I sit down and and this cute little bitty thing says to me, oh, I love it when they put somebody itty bitty next to me. And I I legit like was looking around, you know, yeah. like you would see. And I'm like, what is she? T-? I said, you you mean me? And she said, oh, my gosh, yes, you're so tiny. And and it took me a minute to realize that I was and that I am. And so I never get tired of hearing somebody go, you're so little. Oh, look how tiny you are. Or, oh, you're a little, uh, one of my friends in the UK calls me a pocket rocket. I love it. Yeah. Because for somebody that took up so much space for so long, uh, that's that's a good, that's a fun transformation. So how does that, I mean, I love for my listeners to hear that because people are writing in all the time about moves that they're making as a result of hearing these conversations. And, uh, you know, I just had somebody write in and say that she and her, I can't remember, fiance or boyfriend are moving from Australia to Canada and she's doing this acting program. I'm like, oh, that's so great. What? So people are doing transformation. People that are listening to this, I'm imagining a lot of them are kind of in the midst of transformation. Um, how do you put that into their head in terms of like, eventually, you know, you did the work that, that had you change on the outside. How long <laughs> was the lag or is it still going on? You Do know, you still- I, I, that's a good question. I wish there was a prescription for that, a formula, a recipe, a time frame. A friend of mine in the industry, Michael Barber, he has gone through the same transformation. He's about 10 years younger than me. And uh, we've talked before about doing a podcast. He said, she said, the conversations that are in our heads all the time about who we are and how much space we're taking up and and what we really look like. And he looks phenomenal and he's in great shape and he's very fashionable and he's hip and everybody loves him. And still we have those moments that resurface, tend to be weary moments or... Uh, I have to really battle it when I'm around my family because I still have some people in my family, very, very, very close with my parents. But I do have three brothers that have me frozen in time at a certain point. And I have, you know, there's a dynamic that some people like to still make you feel small in other ways, keep you in your place in other ways. Yeah. And, and so you have to be really careful and mindful, but it's it's something that I have to talk out loud to myself about even now. And I've been at the same way approximately four years. And I still will look in the mirror and talk to myself. I still will check the tags on my clothes or I'll hold them up and go, there's no way that these are going to fit. Right. And yeah. then I put them on or I'll see somebody else that's the same size. I'll say, oh, that's a That's a great size. Because I used to do that when I was bigger. I would say, I think that's the size I would like to be because I'd never been small. I think that's the size I'd like to be. <laughs> and somebody around me, one of my girls or my husband will go, uh, yeah, you're <laughs> you're either already that size or you're or way smaller. smaller. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, can, you need to fix this in your head. So sometimes 
It's fine. It's probably like being an actor. Sometimes you feel confident, very on top of your game. Sometimes you go, I don't know that I'm ever going to get another part again. I don't know that anybody's ever going to hire me to speak again. Um, But parenting is that way too, right? I mean, we have those rock star days that we think we're killing it as a parent. And then the other days you're like, oh, I think I made a mistake. I think... Yeah. So sorry, I screwed you up. Here's your therapy like fund. Time, yeah. As my, as my dad would say, that's that's their job description is once you figure it out, they go they 100 change. degrees yeah. the opposite direction. So yeah. it's a constant. You have to surround yourself with supportive people, not people that make you delusional, but supportive people. You have to have some healthy thought patterns, whether you're writing out affirmations to yourself, whether you're feeding yourself with positive books um, positive interviews, podcasts like this one, or, you know, if you're a person of faith, if you're filling your head with scripture, music, whatever that's like. I know I have different playlists depending on the day. Yeah. And there are certain days that I know when my girls are singing certain things in the shower that says so much to me as a mama that I know how to talk to them when they get out of the shower, you know, and I'm kind of the same way. So uh, I think I think it's a work in progress. I hope I never have arrived yeah. I hope I'm never just- I don't think any of us have a We never will. It's always- And I don't want to think I have. No. I really want to always be kind of a work in progress, refining. Yeah. Well, what? so I just heard uh, Oprah actually recently talking about, she was kind of doing like a retrospective on her whole fluctuation yeah. of weight. And she went back to, um, you know, a show when she had just come out and lost all this weight. Mm-hmm. And, and she was talking, she's like looking back at the the younger Oprah and she was like, oh, that was so much of that was ego and feeling like I wasn't, um, you know, that I needed to be this other thing. So how have you, because I, I feel like my recollection of you talking about this transformation was, yes, it was on the outside and that's cool, but it was more of, what changed on the inside? One, what you what you had to do differently for those results to be different, and then two, even just like the health aspects, the moving around, the confidence, all of the the kind of additional things that were. It's not just a surfacey right thing. Is how I gathered it from right. you. How and you've taken it. I didn't. I didn't start losing weight, and and we could apply this same conversation to us getting out of debt. We could apply the same conversation to creating a business, right? We're using weight as the example, but that's one of my many transformations. We could apply this in so many areas. So if you're listening and you don't have a weight issue, don't say this doesn't apply to you. This really can apply in so many areas. But I didn't start losing weight to look better, honestly. My body chemistry was out of whack. My um, self-image was out of whack. My energy was crazy low. I was 29 years old at my heaviest and uh, two little kids. At the same time, I'm seeing parents and grandparents being diagnosed with diabetes and hypertension. And my grandmother was my age when she started having heart attacks. She'd already had two by the time she was in her 40s and she was trim. But we had so many genetic issues health wise that I thought, okay, I think those are either reversible or controllable. I have a responsibility for that. I've just adopted these children. And I told the judge I would do my very best to to make sure I was here for them. The other was I knew that it was controlling as someone who fights depression anyway. um, I I don't know if everybody knows this, but fat produces estrogen, extra estrogen, which then puts your hormones out of balance. So extra fat, boys and girls, produces extra estrogen, makes you moody. However, extra estrogen affects you 
when you're dealing with extra weight, you have that flood of hormones in your body. Okay. So I was fighting a 150 pound extra person on top of where I am now. Right. And all that estrogen. Well, on top of depression that's in my family. So it was just a tsunami of things. So I I did it to reverse health conditions and prevent them. I did it to control my emotions and my mental health. And also I now have four children. Three of those are girls. And as somebody who fought hating myself and my body my whole life and feeling like I had to prove myself in other ways and feeling like I would never be enough for the right type of partner or the right type of soulmate or always feeling like the odd one out among I was so lucky to have friends because otherwise why would they hang out with me and it's probably where my humor developed it's probably where my people skills developed because I was compensating for where I thought I wasn't worthy so as the mom of these kids I have to say, I'm tired of putting them in front of other people and saying, oh, these are such good role models for my kids. I need to be their best role model. Yeah. Linda Carter, who I'm going to be their freaking Wonder Woman. And my kids, I want them to want to be like me. One of my mentors said this early on. Her name's Gloria Mayfield Bank. She's a rock star speaker. You should have her on, as a matter of fact. She's amazing. She said, and this really struck a nerve with me. I don't want my kids to be like her or him or him or her. I want my girls to be like me. And if I don't want them to be like me, I need to change who and what I am in order to have the character and the integrity that they're going to be like me. And I want my son to marry a woman just like me. You know, and I thought, okay, that's a huge moment because, you know, I hang out with some incredible people. Allison Levine, I would love for my girls to be like Allison Um, and At the same time, I would love for my kids to be like me. So I made a conscious choice to be the role model physically, emotionally, spiritually, motivationally that I wanted my kids to look up to. Yeah. And where, where did that, your, your dad, I was going to say, where did all of the, you know, where (laughs) did this, you have this fire, you have this real fire (laughs) in you. And I remember you talking about your dad, because mm-hmm. I think I actually even texted you and said, I, I, maybe I'll get your dad on this <laughs> My on this dad show is a because, rock star. Because he he had something. Yeah. The, my recollection he built was- the house. Yes. Okay. And he did it from books. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. So, so because you have that in you as well. Is it is it from your dad, your mom? Is your mom that way as you well? You know, or? I won the parent lotto. I mean, they are not perfect, but they're perfect for me. And- What I will say is that um, I am the only survivor from eight pregnancies. My mom had eight, uh, seven losses. I was number seven of eight, and I'm the only survivor. Okay. My dad, when my mom came home from the doctor that day, she had not been feeling well and been having a lot of trouble. And he was painting the fence, she said, in the 71. Okay, painting the fence in Florida, military officer, back to her. She pulls up, gets out of the car, and he said, uh, how'd it go with the doctor? She said, well, it went okay. He never turned around. This is just so classic, my dad, stoic. He said, he said, you're pregnant, didn't he? She said, yes. You're scared, aren't you? Yes. He said, well, I'm going to tell you, still painting, right? I'm going to tell you, this is my girl, and this one's going to make it. So from the time that my mom was pregnant with me, 
He he got her a nurse, put her on bed rest, which was unheard of in those days. Two toddlers because they adopted three boys. So, um, you know, from that moment, my dad, my parents just had this unwavering belief in me. And I remember knowing that story from being really young. Number one, that my mom had had all those losses and I was the only survivor. That's a big responsibility for an empath, right? I'm like, oh, well, why am I the one? Survivor yeah. guilt, but kind of reversed, right? Survivor responsibility, maybe, is what, what I should label that. Um, but my dad is this crazy, crazy, crazy work ethic guy. He was the oldest of four, only high school graduate, career military, only college graduate. He did that at my age and um, broke the cycle of a lot of ignorance that was in his side of the family. And when we were in the military, we would move into a house sight unseen because, you know, we didn't have social media or texting or whatever. So mom would sell the house and pack us up and we would go meet him wherever he was and walk into a house. We walked into this house and there were five of us going to live in this house and it had one bathroom and it was teeny tiny. And I remember my mom doing her very best to be supportive and saying to dad, I like it. But there's one bathroom. Where are we going to put everybody? And my dad walked her through and painted for her a picture of where the new rooms were going to be and what the upstairs was going to look like. And she said, well, that's going to be nice, but you don't build. And he said, it's okay, baby. While I've been here the last three weeks, I saw this infomercial. Like infomercial wasn't the word he used, but I saw this TV program about these remodeling books, these time life series books. And and everybody listening is nodding their head because you've seen those infomercials. He bought the series. He put a second story on our house, doubled the value of the house, doubled the square footage of the house. He did it in his part time, in his spare time on the weekends with three kids, military career. I'm very much wired like my dad. He's very, very proud of that. Uh, I'm DIYing all the time. You and I talked about this off air. You know, I'm constantly DIYing and I walk into a place and I believe my dad taught me this. And I believe that I see this about people too. I can walk into a place and while my husband or other people might see what is there, what I see is what can be there, what the potential is there. I can tell you what walls need to be knocked out in my life as well as, you know, in a house and in a structure. I can see the potential. And I think my dad just kind of intuitively taught me that. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a house to fire. I also had three brothers. So I was a scrapper. I had to fight for the right to talk, the right to be heard, the right to, to you know, not get beat up and <laughs> Yeah, it was survival for so, sure. So what then? Like, so everything you're telling me um, all makes sense for who I know you to be right now. And then when you tell me about who you were, kind of before this transformation, yeah. it's almost like isn't it oh, crazy? It seems well, it just seems like yeah, you just your energy alone seems like I, I can't imagine you ever sitting still. Right. Were you that way? Were you sitting still? I was, I was probably, I was still super busy when I was so heavy and when I was so depressed, I was still at the top of my sales career. I was still earning prizes and trips and leading record-breaking groups in my sales career. Were you eating differently? Were you drinking differently? Oh, I was absolutely eating differently. And we can talk about genetic predispositions, but, you know, there was some of that in play. There was just some, what I like to call the hundred different decisions or lack of decisions you make a day. 
the the lack of focusing on water, the lack of consciously moving your body. You know, I was very, very busy, but it was a sedentary kind of busy. Yeah. Also, I was in mom survival mode. I had two toddlers, one with special needs. And so it was mac and cheese and it was late nights when I was building that first business. There were there were days on end when I would maybe sleep two hours. And so my cortisol was probably through the roof. My estrogen, we know, was through the roof. Right. Uh, my husband was gone a lot traveling on business and we just weren't eating right or healthy Um so, and I don't work out that much now. I radically shifted my eating habits, how I fueled my body. I radically changed my supplementation, you know, became very conscious of vitamins and, and minerals and water and those kind of things. And, you know, so yeah, it was, it was in a, t- it's the same way you get into relationship trouble. It's the same way you get into financial trouble. It's the same way uh, I've had people that I call uh, health arrogant or thin, arrogant, that will say, how does that even happen? I'm not trying to be rude, but which, by the way, if you ever start a sentence with that, that <laughs> means it's rude. Much rude yeah. Yeah. Um, but how does that even happen? How do you wake up and then all of a sudden? Well, you don't wake up and all of a sudden. It's a series of, like in a relationship, it's a series of days that you only text or you're just transactional or you don't have any face-to-face time or you're not investing in the relationship or you're focused on being critical instead of positive and loving or whatever that looks like. It's a series of the Bad decisions or non-decisions that you're making on a daily basis. Yeah. And your health is the same way. And some of us are more disposed to it than others, and it's going to creep up faster. When you're five, three, five, four, you can't carry a lot before, you know, it starts taking a toll. But what I also know is that my mom always fought her weight. And so she started fighting mine early. And it was always top of mind. It was always. In a bad way. Well, it was always her, her, her trying to help me be conscious, but incentivizing me to lose or making comments about that outfit's not flattering or, you know, those kind of things. So I had all these tapes in my head. So when I moved out of the house, heck yeah, I was going to eat what I, I was tired of being policed. Yeah. I was now the one buying the groceries. I was, you know, I think I gained 30 pounds the first four months I was married. It was like pulling a cord on a life raft. It, you know, it was because it was kind of a rebellion against being being monitored or judged or controlled in that way. Now, nobody's closer than my mom and I. I adore my mom. We're very, very close. It's a battle we have both fought. She's also winning that battle. She looks amazing. She's 73 and reinventing herself even now. Um and of course, now I'm going to get hit because I said her age on an interview, but that's okay. We I, can can always, t- I can take her. I tower We can always now. edit it we out. Can, <laughs> it's I, okay. I, I actually want to switch course yeah. for one second anyway. So I know you've spoken before about your speaking, which I think is just off the charts. You learned a lot of it in the churches early, right? Didn't you sing when you were a kid? Yeah, I'm a trained musician. Uh huh. And I, you know, the funny thing is, since I was a kid, I always knew my life would be on stage. I just had this knowing I I belonged on stage. Not, and we've already talked about my image, not because I thought I was pretty or people wanted to look at me, but I've always been an entertainer. And I just thought it was music because I grew up in the church and that's what, you know, I sang. It's what I could do because I grew up in a Southern church. We sure weren't speaking, the girls. You know, we're, we still got a lot of work to do in that area. 
But uh, yeah, and my dad was the pastor of a church um, after he retired from the military. And so I was his like go-to. If somebody didn't show up or if he just had a certain song he wanted me to sing or whatever, it, be instant in season and out of season. I mean, that's what I got all How the time. at that time? Oh, I, my first solo was probably three and a half, four. Oh my God. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I studied music in college. Um, I, I am one semester short of music degree before I switched to mass communication because I got married and decided to graduate faster. Um, but, oh, weddings, funerals, um, musicals. I've written and produced Christmas productions. And I also did theater in high school. Uh, so our path could have been very similar, actually. Except, well, my, But the funny thing is I wasn't doing any of Well, that. but our professional path could have been really similar, but I grew up in a very conservative family. And so, and also because there wasn't internet and stuff, I didn't know what all was possible. So for me, music teacher or church entertainer, that that all seemed within reach and seemed possible at the time. I never would have dreamed I would have been a speaker ever in a million years. How did that come about? How old were you? Was it, you know, what was the timeline of you, you know, graduate? Where'd you go to college? Undergrad? Uh, Texas Women's is where I graduated. And then you, and then did you have like a, the kind of like a day job and all of it? What, what were you doing prior to to starting my business. Yeah. Yeah. So I taught high school journalism, yearbook, photojournalism, all those things. And funnily enough, my favorite part of all that was the marketing and the fundraising and the sales part of that. And uh, I had kind of a reputation for turning programs around and creating these great marketing plans, which I had no business education whatsoever. My husband's the one with the MBA. Um, and so then I adopted the kids, decided to stay home and went into sales so I could work at home and then created a home-based business and had to sell my own services. And as part of my marketing, I would go speak and I would use my humor and then my marketing as not to get paid for it, but to bring in business. Where would you speak at that time? um, I would speak at, at, uh, sales conference meetings, anywhere my ideal client was. And I was really popular. And I said, ah, this is, I remember one moment on stage that I thought, okay, this this is exact. This is where I'm supposed to be. And for anybody who's never had that moment, that's a really that's a cool moment. When I thought, now it was still several years before I did that full time, but I remember calling my husband right after on the drive home. It was in Branson, Missouri, funnily enough, and I called him and I said, um, number one, I killed it. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of my it was my biggest speech so far, 500 people. And I said, number two, is there a way to get paid for that? Because that might be what I'm supposed to be doing that. I can see me doing that. And um, it took several years, but and even then I didn't pursue it. After that, I went back into my normal business. But somebody called one day, a phone call can change your life, right? Somebody called one day. This is back when we had hardline phones. It's back when people could call information and get your number. I was doing interviews like this online and somebody called my house and said, hey, we need to talk to Carrie Wilkerson, the Barefoot Executive. And I said, "Uh, this is she. They said, we um, are having a sales conference in Dallas, Texas. It was like three months away. And um, we have... 500 people that are going to be there. And we know we probably cannot afford your keynote fee. But since it's local and you don't have to fly, would you be willing to come speak to our people? And I'm like covering up the phone going, what, what, what? 
they want to pay me money. I didn't know how to charge them. I didn't know what to say. Um, I said, well, so what exactly is your budget? If you don't think you can meet my keynote fee, what is your budget that you have for the event? Well, we re- we only have $2,500. Would you be willing to do that? And I said, well, I would be willing, but you would also need to cover my mileage to and from, and I need to be able to sell CDs or materials there as well so that that will help me level up to my feet. Like I'm just making this all up off the top of my head and I hang up and I'm literally shaking. They were so excited and I was shaking and I'm, I am I couldn't even fathom somebody was going to pay me to talk because I'd been told my whole life to shut up. Who was telling you to shut my up? My brothers, my family. You talk too much. Stop talking. Stop talking. Shh, shh, shh. We have a family of five, six people, right? There's a lot of people talking. I do talk a lot. It's okay. But now I get paid for it. So it's all right. Um, that was my first keynote fee. And I'm like, oh my gosh. what? Now I have to go do it. Now I have to go do it. And my next one, I... So then... This is law of attraction, right? So then... I talked about it on a couple of my interviews that I was keynoting and I, and I, um, this was before social media. So I didn't post any pictures anywhere, but I talked about it. Oh, interestingly enough, I sold as many CDs that we burned on our own computers of other recordings like this. I sold as many there. I like doubled my fee while I was there. We're driving away and my mom's like, I feel like I should floor it because I feel like we just robbed a bank. You just did that for one hour and made $5,000. It was, it was a very cool moment. And I know now you're making a lot more than that. And now it's a lot more than that. So then my next one, when they called, I still didn't know how to set a fee. So my next one, they called and um, I knew who I, I, I was Googling while I'm on the phone to see who spoke last year. This yeah. is a good strategy, by the way, to see who spoke last year. And I knew what his fee was because we were um, colleagues in an, in another way. We knew each other on social media and were friends. And so I knew approximately what his fee was. So I just brought mine in 500 under his because his book was a New York Times bestseller and mine wasn't yet. And so um, I said $7,500. And they're like, done. I'm like, dang it. First of all, I should have asked for more. Should've Second of all, I just tripled my keynote fee and I don't I still I didn't even know. My third fee was twelve five and was to an audience of twelve thousand people. Wow. <laughs> so where does So that's not that normal. Come, this is not a path. Come, no, no, but where does that come from? The first time when you get the call, it's out of nowhere. Where does that negotiating come from? Because most people I didn't so negotiate. They, I just said, What's your budget? Yeah, but most people I, I think a lot of people listening will go, oh my God, you know, and because they're so surprised, it caught them off guard. Right. You, you had the wherewithal in that moment <laughs> to say, what's your budget? Where does that come from? Um, you Did know, that again, maybe, although he's, he did just buy a new pickup truck and practically stole it from the man. I'm convinced he's a negotiator. He's a hard negotiator to save money. He's never made a lot of money. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I would say it comes to knowing what your core values are and what you want to protect. And if it's taking time away from my family or time away from my business, I have to be compensated for that. Now, speaking is something that I love enough. I would do it for free if I could afford to do it for free. Right. But because of the time it's taking away from my business or my kids, um, I cannot afford to do it for free. So uh, somebody that I had met 
funnily enough, was on the uh, board of NSA at that time. And I, I messaged him. I said, hey, uh, I'm getting asked to speak. He said, yeah, I'm not surprised. I've heard your interviews. And I said, well, I don't know how to set my fee. He said, you make it up. I said, what? He said, yep, you make it up. You look at your core priorities. You look at how much you like sleeping in your own bed and, and being in your own shower and packing a suitcase and going through security. And you decide what's the cost of you being away from your life during that point. And you decide what's it worth. And so, um, as you know, I only do a couple of speaking gigs a month because I don't want to be away from my life that much. I still have two kids at home and I, I, I love my house. I spend a lot of time making it beautiful and comfortable and, and I enjoy my people and um, my friends. And so you you make it up, honestly. Now, there's only so high you can go if you don't have a best-selling book or if you don't have a platform, those kind of things. But it really is that subjective. But you have to know, uh, here's an exercise I teach my clients. When somebody says, can I pick your brain? Can I have some advice? Can we go to lunch? Can whatever. You have to know approximately what your hourly value is if you were home working on income producing activities, okay? So let's say that's $1,000 an hour. Let's just say and somebody wants to for me to come speak for free, I have to imagine them reaching into my wallet or my bank account or my kid's college account and pulling out $1,000. That's step one in knowing how to protect your time. It's not about am I a diva? Am I too good? It's not ever about that. It's about that's money I can never make again. That's not that there's not a time and a place to go do advice or whatever, but if you start doing that and pulling away from your business, then you start questioning your worth because you don't have what's called price integrity. You have to have price integrity. So when you're speaking, if we're going to go that route, when you're speaking, and I think you and I have had this conversation, you have to be paid in one of like four ways. You have to be paid in the contacts of who else is going to be there. If you're speaking for free, which you never speak for free, you speak for contacts of everybody that's there. You speak for credibility of who else is speaking there or who's going to endorse you after hearing there. Did I go speak free the day I shared the stage with John Maxwell? Absolutely. Because I went and spoke right before John Maxwell. He came in to hear me. He endorsed me. I have his endorsement saying Carrie is one of the best speakers I've ever heard. I've never seen someone talk with an audience the way Carrie does. And you've experienced that. Yeah, you yeah. know what he no, means. It's hard, a, yeah. it's hard to understand it unless you've seen it. So did I speak for free that time? No, I spoke for that endorsement is what I spoke for. Or you speak for um, cash. Or you speak for, let's see, credibility, cash. Those are the three core ways. Contacts, credibility, cash, or content. If you're speaking to uh, create the video or the yeah. uh, photos and or you get to sell from stage if yeah. that's your model. Yeah. Like that's not my model. That's not your model. But those are the ways you get paid to speak. Right. And I'm just thinking that, you know, here we are two years later. And one of the pictures that I brought up first was the picture of you on a stage in what seemed to be an arena. Mm -hmm. So it's like mm -hmm. that one image. Mm -hmm. And I think you even commented on it. You said, you see this, you know, it's like you're, you were, you were making a point to that particular audience because mm -hmm. of what they needed. But th that image, it did, it, it seared its way into my brain. So 
you could, I, I'm sure you're not always speaking on, on stages that big, but in my mind, I'm like, oh, she's also done like whatever that was, 12,000 yeah. seat arenas. Yeah. But I want to get into some of your no's before I let you go. I want to get into some of like the big obstacles. And I know I've heard you speak about, you know, being a, a mom of, of so many kids, first of all, so but many. also <laughs> it's four, right? four. and yeah. and special needs. And, yeah. and, and I know that w- whether that's one of the ones you want to talk about or not, but I know that I wouldn't call that a no, but I would call that mm. it's a, it's a more of a, of a challenge than most people are having. And I know how challenging it is just to have kids that don't have special needs. So mm. wherever you're, wherever this takes you, just some of the no's and how you have gotten past them, how, how you get over them or through them. Yeah. Um, my, I had 11 years of no pregnancy tests. So when I did have a surprise pregnancy and I went into the doctor because of the symptoms I was having, <laughs> which he diagnosed as multiple other things, but his wife came running down the hall and said, I think she's pregnant. I was furious. Now, part of that was hormones. Now we know, but I was just furious that she was going to, as a type A achiever, it's the only test I couldn't study hard enough to pass. And people that are listening that have been through that, they get that. It's hard to explain to anybody that has never experienced that. Um, and I said to her, and I, and I, I'm a little surprised I didn't strike her because I can still conjure up that rage that I had in the moment. I said to her, I have failed 11 years of pregnancy tests. I am not taking one more. And, um, of course I did take one because I had to, because of all the other diagnosis he gave me, I couldn't take the medicine until I took the test. Right. And of course I was already nine weeks. I was almost through my first trimester already. That was a lot of no's and that was hard. And that's a lot of feeling broken and not understanding. And I don't know that any man could ever understand something that's supposed to be so natural and so innate and so ordained and so whatever, when it doesn't work for you, how inadequate that makes a woman feel. So that was a lot of no's. Um, You know, I grew up in a very strict house, so I got no's all the time. Wait, hang on. I'm not going to let you go. (laughs) How, how did those, you're calling them no's, but the, you know, not being able to get pregnant. How did they, if they did, how did they make you a better mom? Well, I, sure didn't take my pregnancies for granted when they did happen. I had friends that, um, now let me back up and say my first two are adopted siblings. We made a conscious choice to adopt first. I grew up in a culture of adoption. I have three adopted brothers. I always wanted to adopt. So we decided to start trying to have kids at the same time as we started the adoption process and see which happened first. Okay, so um, I was already a mom in the middle of all those things. Um, so a lot of people will say, oh, adoption was your consolation or whatever. That that wasn't the case at all. And I do, out of respect for my two kids I, and other adoptive parents, I like to clarify that. But how did it make me a better mom? I, I had friends that 
wanted to be pregnant or wanted to have a family, but whined and complained and moaned their entire pregnancies about fat they were or about throwing up or not. And it's a hard job. Being pregnant is a hard job. I get it. I was in a totally different grateful space for it. To me, it was a miracle every single day, every single day, even when I delivered at 268 pounds, even when I had kidney stones and thought I was losing her, um, even when I got so sick in the hospital delivering her, the epidural didn't work. It wasn't even natural birth on purpose, but I had to do natural birth. Dang it. I'm still a little bitter about it because she was huge. But I, I think it made me a better mom because it was a, and her middle name is Grace because she's an undeserved gift. So yeah, I think it made me a better mom. It, and not that everybody even ever has the positive test. There's a lot of people. I have lots of friends that never, ever, ever um, got pregnant. And the truth is we were, um, I was on the pill <laughs> at that point <laughs> when I got pregnant. Really? Both times. Yeah. So the truth is we can make plans. We can take do the charts and the tests and the treatments. And so much of it, I think, is still out of our hands. But um I think probably my job now as a speaker, I live an audition-based life, basically, a rejection-based life. Um, so when we're talking earlier on the podcast about people calling me to speak, it doesn't happen like that every single day. Um, my book also happened that way. Somebody called me and said, would you publish a book for us? We've been watching your brand online and we want you to write it. But that doesn't always happen that way. I've been told no 10,000 more times than yes. So how do you... How do you get through them? If you could help, you know, my audience, because they're they're gonna they're listening and they're going, well, she speaks, she speaks on these big stages. I've never done that. She wrote a book. I've never done that. She has her own company. I've never done that. She's doing it from home while raising four kids. I've never done that. How before you had that, before you were in that position, when you were being told no, which I'm sure you're still being told no present day, probably today, for if your life is like mine, you know, always, it just, it doesn't end. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you get through it? Well, you have to trust the process. First of all, you have to, in a way, and I hate to say it this way, but I think you and I've talked about odds before. You have to trust the numbers and you have to keep trying in order to improve your odds. You have to keep, you have to take the criticism or the evaluation or the feedback, discern what's true and what's just not for you at that moment. Maybe work on your craft or maybe know who your audience is. You know, um, sometimes in your business, it's just, you might be six inches too tall for the role. You know, my daughter's an actress and sometimes it's because They've already cast a couple of other people and she skews too Caucasian or too tall or too curvy or she went through this weird stage that she didn't look like a kid anymore, but she didn't look old enough to be an adult either. So sometimes it has nothing to do even with your skill, your talent, but maybe just your look. Yeah, I would call that for me. And I was just talking about it to someone today. Know the system, know the game you're playing. Yes. Because- yeah, you know, absolutely. If, if, you, if you know the game and that's part of the game, then when it happens, you don't get bummed out. Exactly. So you have to know the game. You have to know your odds. You have to know that you have to keep trying um, and you have to keep improving your craft. You can't say, oh, I heard this one success story of where they were just discovered. That's what I'm going to do. Sometimes you have to be in the, the longer game, but you also have to 
trust that there's a bigger picture at work for you. And so whether you're a faith-based person or not, or you're an energy person or a universe person, or you just have to trust the big picture, you have to say, huh, that wasn't the best role for me at this point. Ah, that wasn't the best thing. I've had gigs turn me down that then I I turned around and got one that was much bigger, right? I've had some that came to me that were a battle to get and then they argued over every penny and then they didn't treat me well as far as transportation or arrangements or whatever. And then I've had some that just wanted to even pay me more and just flew me in and out. And, you know, you, you just have to know what it is in the big picture. The minute you get focused on today and you and the myopia of all that, you defeat yourself. It has to be bigger than that. Um, You have to know that in the scheme of things, that wasn't the perfect role for you at that time. So maybe it freed up time. This is what we say at my house when my daughter gets turned down. Oh, it looks like this is a training season. That means we're not going to be in a show for this Christmas. We're going to be training. We're going to be working on monologues or we're going to be polishing skills or saving money or whatever that looks like. Huh. That wasn't the season for this right now. Um, You know, between you and I and all your listeners, one of the gigs I just got recently um, is a a smaller gig for that company. It's still 3,000 people, but their ultimate gig that I've had my eye on that I've never pitched for yet uh, is a 40,000 person 40, state. 40,000? It's a, it's a sports arena. Wow. And so that's something that I'm saying to my girls. Do you think that I'll remember any of those no's from those other negative people when I'm on that stage affecting 40,000 people. Can you imagine the sound? And this, so this is what I do. Then I paint the picture like my dad did of the house. I paint the picture to myself and to my family. Can you imagine what it's going to be like with mom on the jumbotron in that arena and all 40,000 of those people laugh at that one point on that one story that you like so much? And so then their belief in me and us seeing the picture helps take the stink from that. Um, There was a point in my career I said, I think part of this has to do with image. I need to get down to my fighting weight. I need to work on this. I need to make sure I'm focused on marketability. I need to, and we can argue against those things. We can protest. We can go to a rally. We can whatever, or we can be paid and do work. And I want to be a working speaker. So I'm looking constantly, how do I improve my craft? How do I improve my ask? And also, here's how you deal with no's. They're not nows. It's just the unfinished word. It's a not now. I have gigs that told me no that I kept following up every six to 10 months that then turned into multiple six-figure 18-month contracts. Yeah. Well, when they were initially a no. Here's what's funny. You just you just jumped the gun. So oh, sorry. To, no, no, this is great. <laughs> this is great. I was about to save you from yourself because we're both talkers, and I know you have a flight to catch. And I was going to give you my. I like to. I have a couple of questions at the end. Speed and round. You actually, and you actually just answer the first one. Which okay. Was, I, well, you already did it. I, I, I usually say complete this sentence. The word no actually means what? And you said not. Not yet. now. Not now. Not now. Not yet. Yeah. Or not me. I love it. Yeah. What? So your go-to mantra when everything falls apart. So daily then. <laughs> every day, every minute. <laughs> um, 
I was created for a moment like this. You know, that's straight from the biblical and historical record of Queen Esther, who saves the Jewish people. Um, and whether whether your listeners are Bible believers or not, it's a historical record. And, and Mordecai tells Esther when she's scared and she's pitching herself to the king and risking her life. I mean, my auditions, I am not risking my life, right? She's risking her life. And he says to her, you have to remember you were created for a moment such as this. So even in the no's and even in the not now's and even in the not me's, I have to say, but I was the only survivor of eight. Why was I created? I was created for this. So it's my responsibility to keep headed towards the yes. Love that. Last thing. <laughs> if you could give your younger self advice. Oh, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? I would say probably mm, junior high. That's such a horrible time to be alive, isn't it? Like everything's changing all at the same time. My son's in middle school. He will, not, he will not listen to this. Well, you but know, everybody I mean, says that to them. Really, now, anyway. I, they know. I mean, things yeah. are changing. They don't want to, like they're crying and they don't even know why they're crying. Or um, I would say... What matters, it, it doesn't matter if they like you or not. It doesn't matter if they accept you or not. It matters that you have character, that you have integrity, and that you do the right thing. I think we get... Junior high is when the invisible audience comes into play. And the invisible audience... You know, they go from sixth grade where they can wear whatever they want and do whatever they want. And their friends are all so diverse. Everybody's so different. And in seventh grade, all of a sudden, well, what would they think if I wear that shirt? Or, oh, I split my pants. What's everybody saying? The invisible audience. Well, now because of social media, I think we never ditch it. Used to, we kind of outgrew that late high school, early college. But now we carry around this invisible audience. And I would say, only worry if you matter to the people that matter. And those are your close friends, your close fam family. The When they're saying no to me or not yet to me or not you to me, um, it's really not a me issue. It's not a I'm flawed issue or not worthy issue. It's a I'm not right for that part issue. And so I think that helps. One other thing that helps me tackle no's, this is a little bit of a taking charge of the situation that might be helpful to people is when they say, oh, we've decided to go another direction. Have you ever heard that? Oh, we've decided to go another <laughs> direction. Day, yeah. Oh, we've, you know, blah, blah. I love to leave them with a couple of recommendations. I totally get that. Now I might be dying on the inside. I totally get that. And I respect that. I'm going to suggest to you three people that I think are really amazing in this area, this area, and this area. And I love to leave them a gift of that instead of walking away feeling defeated, if that makes sense. 
it confuses them a little bit, yeah. which is fun. Yeah. But that's kind of fun. Um, but it also helps me take control of the conversation in my head. Oh, I wasn't right for them, but they deserve somebody really great. If they can't have me, they deserve somebody really great. great. Let me make sure. And I recommend Allison all the time. Allison, our friend. Um, I recommend Allison or Carrie or so-and-so, you know, if I'm not who you're looking for, may I please just recommend you these? Yeah. Or let me send you the books of some peers of mine that I think you might enjoy. So giving that gift helps me stay in gratitude and also helps me know it wasn't about me, but maybe it can bless somebody else. That's awesome. Um, Carrie Wilkerson, thank you so much. Uh, I was going to get into your book a little bit, but I'm actually just going to put, I want to end it there and I, we'll have show notes to all yeah. of Carrie's various uh, projects and and anything that you know you and I will talk yeah. we'll have that in there so people Absolutely. can get more of you if they want more of you they want to seek you out if somebody wants to hire her i am hugely endorsing <laughs> you as a speaker i mean i thought you were amazing thank you for sitting down with me thanks for having me yeah all right top 3 takeaways here we go number 1 boundaries maybe the biggest takeaway from Carrie is the limits she places on how many times she'll travel to speak every month if i hadn't seen her speak myself i might have thought this was just spin making it seem like she's the one slowing down the volume of requests when actually she doesn't have the requests but i literally watched her take down the house at an event two years ago in San Diego. She brought humor, spontaneity, and real wisdom, which I'm sure you're not shocked after hearing her talk to me. If she wanted, she could be speaking multiple times a week, every week, but it's her adherence to self-imposed boundaries that has allowed her to continue speaking, but also have what she values even more, a tight-knit family. So that's the takeaway for all of us. What do you really value and how can you design your life to reflect those values? Number two, this one, I don't think Carrie actually verbalized as a takeaway, but I'm going to go out on a limb and try something here. She told that story near the top of the conversation about being on a plane and waddling, I think was the term she may have used for herself, down the aisle and eventually encountering a supermodel who told her she was tiny. And she said, I'm paraphrasing, her mind hadn't caught up to the transformation her body had already made. So she still thought she was physically huge, even though she wasn't. For me, the takeaway here is this. How can we reverse engineer that so that we envision ourselves in the state that we want to be and actually let our minds lead the transformation? So in this instance, if we were Carrie, imagining ourselves tiny in that aisle even before we lost all that weight. Number three. Carrie said, when they say, oh, we've decided to go in another direction, she loves to leave them with a couple of recommendations because even though she's dying on the inside, it allows her to walk away not feeling defeated. And for me, that's kind of the goal. Things will happen that feel terrible to all of us. But if we can trick ourselves into making those things actually boost our energy and our confidence, that's what we need to do. I love this little trick she suggests here. Okay, we're done. Carrie Wilkerson, I really appreciate you sitting down with me, and I'm glad all of you got to hear her wisdom. If you feel like a friend could benefit from this conversation or this show in general, do me a favor, share it, social media, or just text or email the link to your friends. You may think it's a drop in the bucket, but one, I've been getting feedback from actual humans who have told me how this show has changed their lives, and two, that's how this show has grown till now. 
Obviously, an iTunes review really helps so that when total strangers scroll past the show on iTunes, they see the reviews and five-star ratings and say, oh, all these people love it. I'll check it out. Uh, Remember, subscribe to 10,000 Knows wherever you listen so you don't miss any episodes when they come out every Friday. If you want to learn more about Kerry, go check out the links in the show notes. And don't forget to buy a hat and a t-shirt at 10,000knows.com slash store. I promise, promise, promise they are great quality. They're really cool. If you dug Kerry... I've had a bunch of other past guests who have spoken about similar topics of envisioning a better life for yourself and going out there and getting it. Charlie Rocket also had a crazy uh, weight transformation and reversed a brain tumor. Allison Levine uh, has been on the speaking tour with Carrie. Uh, she's a mountain climber, speaker, best-selling author. John Gordon, also best-selling author, leadership consultant, speaker. Amy Budden and Xander Fryer, both of whom really get into the mechanics of training your brain and morphing your self-belief. Okay, join us every Friday for these conversations and the intermittent shorter solo riffs on the themes of this show, resilience, reframing, perseverance, winning mindset. For announcements and promo videos of who's next, you can follow me on social media at Maddie Dell on Instagram, at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook. And I'm also getting onto LinkedIn now. That's at Matthew Del Negro as well. And you can email us at info at 10,000knows.com if you want to be added to our mailing list or with questions, feedback, or guest suggestions. Thanks again. Really appreciate the support. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.